months now. Book of Romans, uh, chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. We have the last three weeks averaged one verse as we've been kind of camping out in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. Uh, Today we're going to go at a blistering pace and hit four verses. And then next week, Lord willing, I think it's five verses, I think, to close out this chapter. Uh, Are we ready to go? Hey, if you haven't prayed and asked the Lord to talk to you, you need to do that right now, all right? Uh, Like be intentional. You don't have to even close your eyes. You just have to be aware of God's presence. Say, Lord, I would like you to speak to me today. Uh, Let me say this. Anytime that I'm preaching, I never assume, nor should you assume, that you will agree with what I'm saying. All right, I'm not up here. I don't expect you to agree with what I'm saying. But I do expect us, if as we look into the Word of God, we find that it says something, and it clearly says that, then we need to match what we believe to it. We don't need to twist it around to fit our beliefs. We need to match what we believe to fit what the Scripture clearly teaches. I'm going to begin today, and it'll take me a few minutes before we read our text, okay? I'm going to begin with a hypothetical, I mean a purely hypothetical. I don't know of anyone that fits this situation, and maybe no one fits this situation. Purely hypothetical, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Here's the key, you ready? Here's the key. I'm going to ask you, could the following things happen to a true Christian? That's key. What I'm talking about is not just everyone who raises their hand at the end of a service. Not everyone who would say, oh, I'm a Christian, or yes, I've been saved. Not everyone who even says, I'm trusting Jesus, because sometimes it's all about the heart. I can't see the heart. The Lord sees, is there faith or not? Or does he see an attempt at faith mingled with works? That doesn't get you to heaven. What I'm talking about today, this scenario, and by the way, this will carry throughout the sermon. You ready? A true Christian. I'm talking about someone who has salvation. They possess eternal life. That's that's what's coming. And as this carries through, when you hear, I can't say every time, I don't know exactly how this will fall out. But as I use the words we and us today, uh uh-oh, hope it's not one of those days. Let me double check right here. As I use the words we and us today, I'm going to be uh, referring to those of us that have true salvation. Here comes the hypothetical. Is it possible for a true Christian, this is one who has eternal life, to fall into a time of depression? Don't answer that out loud. Simple. Can Christians get depressed? And by the way, what I'm talking there is maybe there's some hormonal things that are out of balance, some chemicals that are out of balance in the body, but that's not the main thing. Here it comes. That's already there. They don't even know it. They're just feeling a little down and low. But here's the key. A great loss comes in their life. I don't mean a big loss. I mean a great, great loss. Here's the thing. That they don't see any purpose for it. And they don't see any hope. Psychologists tell us when there's great loss that appears to be purposeless And hopeless, that's a recipe for depression. Can a Christian experience that? Next question. Can a Christian experience lengthy times of depression? By the way, you should have gone two for two on the answer, right? The answer is? Yes. yes, It is possible. Is it possible for that Christian to, instead of turning to the Lord... To turn to something like alcohol to help drown their sorrows. Is that possible? Can a person that's saved go through this depression? Don't turn to the Lord. Don't seek the help. Not turn to the Spirit and the Scriptures. Going to look to quick fix alcohol or something like it. Is that possible? Yes. Is this possible? A man or woman, a Christian in that description so far... They start becoming more miserable, by the way, that's what's going to happen. More miserable because of that, and even more guilt-ridden. Just laden with guilt because of those decisions. And it's not getting better, it is spiraling downward. It's lengthening more and more. Is that possible? Yes. Now, I'm really going to make you uncomfortable. 
Is it possible for a Christian who's been in this depression turn from the Lord instead of turning to him, they turn to alcohol, they continue to go to that, start getting not just turning to alcohol but getting in drunkenness and it lends in lengthy times, weeks and months and months and months of that. I don't want to put a time frame. But is it possible for them to come home? Wow, why is that doing that? We can't have that all day. I'm going to try to give it just a little bit longer. I don't know if it's here. All right. On just a few little wires. Sometimes it's certain jackets do it and sometimes it doesn't. Is it possible for that person in that description to be in a time of great depression and even in a drunken state to come to their house? By the way, their spouse has been going through all these phases with them and watching this and there's fallout from that. And they come home and out of character they get in a drunken rage. And I'm not talking about someone who abuses their spouse. But I mean this one time it gets so heated it turns physical. And maybe even the spouse begins the physicality. But they respond in a shove. Is that possible? A shove that thrusts the wife backward and totally accidentally trips something in the rug. They fall backward, hit their head on the corner of a table and they fall to the ground ground in a pool of blood and die within a few moments. Is that possible? To which I then complete that scenario with this question. Is it possible after all of that They see what has happened. They're filled with remorse. And in that drunken state, they make a worse decision. And they realize that everybody at the plant, everybody at the church knows I'm a Christian. I'm not going to be on Channel 4 News. And they go and they find something to take their own life. Is that scenario possible? Now, I realize that makes us uncomfortable to think about. And I'm going to say it's highly unlikely But I think we have to admit that it is possible. If that's the case, since this person, by the description I just laid out, is a drunken, they came home in a drunken rage which led to murder that ultimately led to suicide, my question for you this morning is, when they die, where will that person Go. I got to tell you, that's not how I would want to leave this world, and that's not how I would want to face God, but I'm here to tell you, the person who does all of that, they fall into that depression, and they, they turn to alcohol, and they don't just like drink something, they get into drunkenness, they come home in a rage, and they, in essence, kill their spouse, and then take their own life in suicide. You say, what would happen to that person, Brother Jeff? I'm here to tell you, they would go straight to heaven. And you say, what? You can't possibly believe that. Now I know I, do, I found something I don't agree with you on. Well, hang on. You say, how could you possibly say that? Why would you believe that? Because I believe the scripture teaches to us what's called the eternal security of the believer. That's why I emphasized at the beginning what we're talking about here is a person that has what I call the obtained kind, not just the professed kind of salvation, the obtained. Do we have like another option? One of the... All right, I apologize for that. Now I'm a one-handed preacher. I, actually, this is the way they do on television, so anyway. Uh, and I'm, I'm not a television preacher. All right, so forgive me. If you're listening to this on recording, uh, actually, we may try something else. Time out. All right, you know what? This is good. This is good. Uh, now back to our regularly scheduled message, okay? Why would I say that this person would go to heaven? I realize that uh, eternal security is a very hotly debated topic. Very hotly debated. 
and there are differences of opinions of those who believe that you can have eternal life. How long can you have it? What does it mean? Some believe you can lose your salvation. By the way, right here in this auditorium, there's somebody that disagrees with me. And you have in your mind, you have good reasons. You have Bible reasons. And to that, I would say, hey, let's get together and talk sometime, not to argue and not to get in a big debate, but let's see what the Scripture says. Uh, Today, I would ask you to pray, Lord, if I need to adjust my thinking, would you reveal it to me, not from a preacher, but from the Scriptures? Different versions of this. Let me throw out three, okay? I'm going to give you three versions of those that believe a person can lose their salvation. Here's one. Ready? You have it. You have eternal life. You have salvation. You have it, but you lose it. All right, you with me? You asked the Lord to save you. You trusted Jesus Christ. He saved you, but you went out and you committed some sin and you lost it. He took it away. But here's the good news. Here's what something, you come back and you ask the Lord to save you again and he saves you again. So watch, you have it and you lose it. And you have it and you lose it. And you get saved as needed. And so, yeah, what some will call rededicating their life in their heart, what they really think is happening is I'm getting saved again and again, and I'm asking the Lord to save me over and over. By the way, if that is your stance, can we at least acknowledge this? That is not a very joy-filled life. Can we agree on that? There's no lasting joy because you're going through life. Am I really saved? Am I not? I don't know today. Here's the other thing. It's not defined in the Scripture. So I would ask that person, now which sins cause you to lose it, or how much of, you say, well, it's not really just one thing, it's, okay, where's the scripture define that line when you lose it? That's my question. Never heard anybody answer that. How do you know? Is it a feeling? Because sometimes Christians wake up and they may not feel saved that day, and that's why we don't go by feelings, we go by what we know. Here's a second version of that. I actually went to high school. Two out of my three best friends believed this in high school. One of them today believes the exact opposite of this, and another one also believes the exact opposite of this because now he's agnostic, atheistic. But the other one definitely believes in eternal security. You say, what did they used to believe? Here's a version of losing your salvation. Here's one version. A Christian, it's not that God takes away their salvation, but they get so far from God, so cold on God, some would use the word backslidden, watch, they choose to give it up, and they use the word apostasy. They apostatize. I am choosing to release myself from this salvation. I don't want a relationship with you anymore. I'm going this direction. Is that possible? And then a third is probably the most common, and it's many Catholics believe the following. Watch. The church takes your salvation away from you if you get out of line. It's called what? Excommunication. And if you really dig into the teaching, what they break, it, or they break people down into two groups. There's the clergy. Hey, I'd get to be the clergy, right? You would be what they would call laity. Laity. Clergy. The clergy are the church. The laity are not actually the church. You're in communication, fellowship with the church. But if you get out of line, the church will excommunicate you, and it's a powerful tool because it keeps the people in line. The only problem is it's just not biblical. But other than that, man, it makes for a great religious system. A lot of force, a lot of power. Study the Middle Ages. The popes would keep the kings in line. You better do this or I'm going to excommunicate you. We will have no church services in Germany if you don't straighten up. And the king's like, okay, 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 let's talk. We're going to do good. We're going to be right. Who is most powerful, the kings or the popes? Probably the popes. Write this down, it's in your notes, your first note. Why do some people believe we can lose our salvation? Reason number one, again, these are not in particular order, not, not an order they would give, just some that I've heard of. Some believe you can lose your salvation because Bible characters like Judas and Demas. Judas and Demas, you say, yeah, I've always kind of wondered about that. And they would say something like this, hey, even Judas, who was one of the 12, lost his salvation. You say, who is this Demas fella? Paul is in prison, and he's going to die this time. He's not getting out. He writes a letter to Timothy, and he tells Timothy, Hey, I want you to come to me. Bring John Mark with you. All that I have left with me is Luke. 
And Paul's about to die, and he's an older man, and he's in prison. He's not under house arrest. He's in the Mamertine prison in Rome, horrible conditions. He's saying, please come, and he starts naming, this one has gone over there, and that one's gone over there, and that one there I've put on a post in ministry. And Demas, he hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. He just left and quit. Only Luke is with me. Timothy, by the way, I'm reading between the lines, you're my favorite. Please come before I die. You say, yeah, what do we say to that? Two answers. Number one, Judas was never saved. He didn't lose his salvation. And Demas was a fair-weather Christian, apparently. He's kind of persecution. We've imprisoned Paul. I'm out. I don't want any part of that. And so Demas checks out. Another reason, this is kind of the main one, if you boil it all down, why some people believe you can lose your salvation. Because we as Christians still commit sin after salvation. It's just a fact. We just commit sin. And then there's a third reason. Here's a big one. I hear this often. It's very logical, by the way. Here's what it says. Some say the doctrine that, quote, once saved, once a person is saved, then they're always saved. That belief, that doctrine leads to very lazy, sinful Christians. And they would even tell me, hey, Brother Jeff, listen, dude, if you tell your congregation, they have, once they have salvation, they can never lose it. Do you know how they're going to live? To that I respond, that is very logical. It's not biblical, but it's very logical. So why do some people believe you can lose your salvation? Well, one preacher down in Baton Rouge years and years ago, very well known, kind of pastor, evangelist, television personality, called the doctrine I'm preaching on today, eternal security, here's what he called this doctrine, that damnable heresy. He would say, today I'm preaching to my congregation that damnable heresy. Heresy, that eternal security, once saved, always saved. That's a heresy. That's what he would say. To which I say, no, you are the heretic. So here's what I want to tell you. What does the Bible say? So let's go to the scriptures, Romans chapter 8. We're going to focus on verses 31 to 34, but to do so we need to back up to verse number 28 again and read verse 28 to 30 and then now include and expand to verse 31 to 34. Here we go. You have to include verse 28 to 30 because it's the foundation of what's coming in 31. Hear what the Bible says. And we know, we know that for those who love God, man, I've said this about four weeks in a row, not everybody who says they love God, love God. But that is a qualifier. For those who love God, here's what the Bible says, all things work together for good. That's security right there. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And then the second qualifier, which I believe is the main one, which actually allows these people to love God, is the end of verse 28. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Last week we said in verse 28, 29, and 30, we love verse 28 that all things are going to work together for good, but it's not the main thing in verse 28. The main thing is this purpose of God... And in verse 29 is going to explain the purpose of God is that Christ, the Son of God, would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the main thing that's going to happen. That's God's purpose. That's God's plan. And in secondary, part of that is the many brethren are going to be conformed to the image of Christ. So that's God's purpose. That's the main thing in verse 28. And that's why the promise we love is going to happen because God has purposed it. And here's what the Scripture says. That affects those who are the called. Listen, it's not everybody that's invited to come to Jesus. It's those that are called. That's what the scripture talks about. Watch verse 29. It's not up to us. This is all about what God does. For those whom he foreknew. Two weeks ago we preached on that word. Again, I'm going to say this third week in a row. A lot of people get all uptight about the word predestined that's about to come. That's not the emotional word if you understand what it's talking about. The word foreknew is the one that we really have struggles with. Because that's about who. Predestined is about what's going to happen to the who. But this is key. Verse 29. For those, here's why we're secure. Here's why all things are going to work together. For those whom he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. It's not just, hey, I kind of know a little bit about them. We studied this out a couple weeks ago. Literally, he foreordained, he foreloved. In verse number 33, in a moment, you're going to see the word, the elect. For those, he also pre 
destined. They will reach a, predest- a, a destination that's been predetermined. What is it? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's predestined that. So all I, I said last week, if someone wants to get emotional about the word predestination, it should really only be those who think you, should, you can lose your salvation because that's what it's saying. No one will lose their salvation. He's already predetermined you're going to become like the son. Why? In order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the purpose of God. So there's those that, are, that he foreknew, then he predestined. Watch verse 30. And those whom he predestined, by the way, that they'll become conformed to the image of Christ, those he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That means he declared them righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We pointed out over and over, past tense, they make it. So watch verse 31. In verse 31 to 35, I'm not going, you're not going to see verse 35 on the screen. In verse 31 to 35, what you're going to see are actually seven questions, five main questions. Five main questions. A couple of them are repetitive or just kind of saying the same thing two different ways. Five main questions. And the first one's the key. Catch what I'm about to say. This is important. Don't let this just become background noise. The first question is explained by the next Four basic questions. The next four basic questions are all going back answering the first one. Here comes. Having just read verses 28 to 30. Watch this. What then shall we say to these things? That's the question. What shall we say to these things? And then he answers his question with four or five other questions. Here's the first one. In answer to the main question. What shall we say to these things? 28, 29, 30. Here's his answer. If God is for us, hold on. What are we going to say to this? Here's what I've come up with. If this saying what I'm thinking is saying, here's what it means. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. Another question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Next question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Same question. Next way. Same question. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes, who indeed is interceding for us. And what you don't see on the Scripture is two more questions, basically the same. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution? Shall these things? And that's next week's message. What can separate us from the love of Christ? This week we have four basic questions. The first one is, what do we say to these things? And then the next three answer the first one. Let's look at these three questions I want to focus on this morning. Number one. Who can successfully oppose Christians? You say, Brother Jeff, got a lot of things, a lot of people opposing me. I got a lot of, lot of things opposing me. The key to the question is, who can successfully oppose Christians? Who can successfully? A lot of things coming against us. Who can successfully oppose Christians? The answer, y'all tell me, who can successfully? I'm going to oppose. I'm making it my goal in life. I'm going to oppose Christians. By the way, one thing. One-third of the angels decided to make this their goal. They're going to oppose us. Who can successfully oppose Christians? The answer, no one. Why? Because God's for us. I'm going to hit this one fast. Ready? That's your answer. Why? Because God is for us. Verse 31. Look at it again. What then shall we say to these things? It's as though Paul is rehearsing verse 28, 29, and 30. He comes to this conclusion. Here's what he asks. Everybody listen. Here's what Paul says. What do these verses mean to you? What are these truths? What are these facts? What do they do to you? What do they make you feel? How do they make you think? What we read there, the foreknown, the predestined, the called, the justified, the glorified. What does that do to you? Paul says, well, here's what it should do to you. And he recounts all the dominoes as he goes backwards. And here's what he says. Here's the conclusion. Ultimately, here's what matters. If 
God is for someone, then it doesn't matter who or what opposes them. They make it. That's what his conclusion is. You make it. You say, but what if this happens? Or what if I do that? Or what if they say that? It doesn't matter. You make it if God is for you. Now I'm going to make somebody upset. I'm going to really bullet down. Really narrow. I'm going to bullet down. I'd love to ask him if he were here. I'm going to give you my opinion. By the way, the reason you make it is the ending has already been written. It's already been written. You're predestined to be conformed to the image. You make it. Verse 28, you make it. Here's my opinion. I think as Paul asks, what then should we say to these things? It's almost like Paul does this. I just wrote it because the Holy Spirit told me to, but if, if this means, and it does, all that I think it does, and it does... Here it comes. You don't have to agree with me. Here's my opinion. If someone is one of the foreknown, foreordained, foreloved, elect, they make it. That's what I think he says. Because that means God is for you. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. And it all starts with that. For who, you want to know why you make it? You want to know why all things work together for good? For whom he foreknew. He predestined them to be conformed to the image. And then they were called, and when they were called, they believed, that's not even in the verses, but we know that we have faith. You have to have faith in Christ to go to heaven. No one without faith in Christ is going to go to heaven that's lived in the last 2,000 years. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ. But once you do that, He justifies you. He declares you righteous, and He ensures you will be glorified. Ultimately, what I think Paul is saying is, I'm going to give you the answer to the question. What do we say to these things? Here it is. If God's for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. Watch. Put every human being who's ever lived, every human being who's ever, billions and billions, put them over there. Put every angel, every demonic, not angels, every demonic force there is all on that side and put a line. I'm telling you, if you put God on this side, there is no match. They are powerful. They are powerful. Way more powerful than I am. But what you have on this side is divinity. You have omnipotence. Over there you have potency over here you have omnipotency over there you have power over here you have all power almighty divinity destroys everyone else but they have a lot of numbers doesn't matter over here you got one so here you are but they're all against me yeah but you've got god if god's for you who can be against you by the way god is against some people and you don't want to be in that god's against some people 2,600 years ago, the worst thing you would have heard on earth would be Nebuchadnezzar's coming. We're going to die. The last thing you want to hear is Jesus is going to judge me and I've rejected him. God is against some people. Christian, he's for you every day, all day, today. He's for you. That means everything. Number two. Second question comes out of verse 32. Here it is. Will God supply all that we need? I mean, we're talking about are we really going to make it? So it boils down to this. Is God really going to supply all that we need? And the answer is yes. Jeff, how do we know he's going to supply all that we need? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The reason we know he's going to give us all that we need is because he's already given us his son. Listen carefully to this point. Listen carefully to this point. When God loves, God gives. When God's love sees a need, He gives sacrificially. Go with me back into eternity past. This is from my, yeah, this will be your way, right? Go left to go in history. Go back, eternity past. There's only Father, Son, Spirit. But because He's God, He knows what's going to happen. He's going to make it happen. He's determined what's going to happen. And God set his love on his people. He set his love on them. And nothing, got to get this, absolutely nothing is off limits. Not even you. So as it's Father, Son, Spirit, not three gods, but one God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, here's what they agree. We will create, yes. They will sin, yes. We will go after them, yes. And you will become human and die on a cross. Yes, I will. Why? Because when God loves, He gives sacrificially and nothing is off limits. 
God calls Abraham to offer his son Isaac. And Isaac will, Abraham willingly offers Isaac and he's ready to take his life. But God spared Isaac. Spare, whoa, stop, Abraham. It was just a test. Won't see if you do it. Stop, don't kill him. Over there's a ram. Kill the ram. God spared Isaac. But he didn't spare his own son. And so Winslow was correct when he asked this question. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Well, I guess it was, you know, Judas betrayed him. He wanted that money. Well, Pilate was afraid of the crowd, so he's the one who delivered him up to die. Well, the crowd, the Jews, they were envious and hated Jesus. They were jealous of him, so they're the ones who delivered him up to die. Winslow's correct. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. The Father Love. The Father is the one who gave him up and over, delivered him to death. Why? Because literally, I love them just as much as I love you. I'm going to give your life to win my children. We're expanding the family. Will God give us all that we need? God owns everything. If it's worth having, God owns it. Question is, will he share it with us? Listen, think. Verse 32 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also give, graciously give us all things? With him, graciously give us all things. The answer, God will give us everything we need. Because if he gave us his son while we were his enemies, will he not in addition to his son give us everything that we need? We were his enemies. Again, not neutral, not minding our own business. No, literally, we opposed God with our life. God loved us in that state. He gave us his son, the very best. Will you guys forgive my weak analogy? I'm going to hit this and we're going to the third question. Weak analogy, I'm confessing. You have to really use your imagination because this is really not true. But you're going to have to pretend I'm the wealthiest guy in Anderson County. By a lot. I mean, I own the two or three biggest houses in Anderson. I mean, mansions, all right? I mean, just billions. Listen, if I give you the keys to the mansion, I've got a few, but I give you the keys to the mansion. And in that mansion, there's like not a two-car garage, there's like six-car garage. And in that mansion, I tell you, now there's the key box. Here's the keys to the mansion. There's where the key box is. In there, you'll find the keys to the Mercedes. You'll find the keys to the Ferrari. You'll find the keys to the Land Rover. You'll find the keys to the souped-up truck. And you'll find the keys to the speedboat and the Sea-Doo's. And you'll find the keys to the houseboat that's parked over at Portman Marina. And you'll find the keys to the 6,000-square-foot beach house. And you'll find the keys to the mountain retreat. Okay, listen, if I give you the keys to all of that, then you don't have to wonder, hey, I wonder if you mind if we use the milk. You think, you think... I see some milk in there. Now, there's some cereal over here. I need a rake. I think there's a rake out in the Guys, you don't have to ask. Hey, is it okay? Can I use the rake? You mind if I get just like a pint of milk? It's for you. If I gave you the mansion, I'd give you all of those things. Here's my point. God gave you his son. He's going to give you everything needed to get you from here to there. He will not lose one. He will not lose one. Third question. Who can successfully condemn? Okay, while well, it goes, oppose. Not a good idea to oppose God's people. Doesn't end well for you. But here's the question. Who can successfully condemn Christians? Because we sure do sin. In fact, we sin a lot. The answer. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And then we have the verse. Again, I'm going to tell you, who can condemn? Who can bring a charge that's going to stick and God's going to have to take our salvation and allow us to be sent to hell? Who who can do that? The answer, no one. Why? This time he doesn't give us an answer. He gives us four or five. I don't have time to hit the other one. I'm going to give you four quick reasons. Here we go. Why do we know that no one can successfully condemn Christians? Number one. Because God's already justified us. You got to picture this. You ready? I've never been. Actually, I've been one time, not for myself. 
I watched Matlock and Perry Mason and all that. I want you to picture you're in court. Watch. Every person in the court is against you. Every person. And there's tons of evidence. Your own team knows you're guilty. They're trying. The prosecution is hammering away at you and they really want you put away. All the witnesses are against you. The families of the victims are against you. The reporters, the cameras, all the crowd waiting outside. The whole city is against you. Here's what I'm here to tell you. That's bad, but that's not the main thing because the main thing is what the judge says. No, 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 you don't understand. Everybody's against me. Everybody's against me. I'm here to tell you, if the judge rules in your favor, you're going to be fine. And as a Christian, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Bible says God declared you righteous. He justified you. Can I put it this way? When God acquits a person, no one can convict that person. No one can convict. God said, here's what they do. Hey, uh, Father, by the way, this really happens. You can't let them. I actually know for a fact. I heard him say this. I know he did that. I know he's not doing these things. God's like, I, 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 stop. No, I don't want to hear it. But, 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 no, 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 but. Be quiet. Shh. I've already declared them righteous. They had no righteousness. I gave them Jesus' righteousness. That's what salvation is all about. Be quiet. Number two. Because Christ already died for us. How do we know nobody can, no one can be successful in their attempt to condemn Christians? Because Christ already died for us. Now, this one's a little unusual. Verse 34 says, who is to condemn? And then he says, Christ Jesus. And we know that it says Christ Jesus is the one who died. I'm here to tell you, by the way, everybody listen carefully. This is important. There is one person who can condemn. There is one person when it's all said and done, you will stand in front of. You're right, right. I got to give an account of my life before God. Hang on. It is God, but I'm here to tell you based on John chapter 5, verse number 22. The Father has given all judgment. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. What that literally means is that Jesus Christ, by the way, every person, all of us, me, you, all of us, will stand before Jesus Christ one day, either at the great white throne judgment if you have rejected Christ, or at the judgment seat of Christ if you have received Him, and that's where He'll determine your reward. The same judgment, the same verdict is given to everyone who rejects Christ and ends up at the great white throne judgment. Depart from me, I never knew you. Bind them hand and foot, cast them in the lake of fire. I just said that quickly, but what I just described is the worst thing that can ever happen to somebody. It's going to happen to many, many people. More people will hear that than will hear the other. And it all boils down to one thing. What does Jesus Christ say? He is the final authority. Satan accuses Jeff. Satan's imps, all of his demonic forces. They accuse me. They accuse me to me. And I can even agree with you. They accuse me to you. Right now, they're going to do it in a minute. Can you believe this guy? He like never finishes before noon. And they're right. And they accuse, right? And they even, they even accuse me to God. He, he's so bold. The Bible calls him that old accuser. By the way, I accuse myself, man. Your conscience beats you up. Some of you have been raised in a home where you were under parenting, where they told you you're not loved, you're a mistake, you don't do anything right, you're the biggest failure. Some of you are like, no, no parent would ever. Some of you are like, that's my childhood. They constantly want to condemn, condemn. You condemn yourself. Lucifer condemns you. You have a rival out there. They're constantly condemning you. Here's all I'm telling you. Jesus has ruled in your favor. The point of that is the one who matters the most, loves me, he died for me, I make it. Third reason why no one can successfully condemn Christians is also in verse 34, and here it is, it's because Christ rose from the dead. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, it means literally picture Christ in the, in the tomb, dead. His soul and spirit are not there. He's in Abraham's bosom. He's with the Old Testament saints. The body is there, but on the third day, the body comes back to life. Why? Watch. God the Father satisfied with the price he paid on the cross to pay for sin. 
But I'm going to touch this very quickly. Ready? Look at verse 34. Watch this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? This is important. By the way, this matters because this is your soul. This is your eternity. You ought to catch this. Do you all know that if we fast forward a million years, go a million years in the future, you say, yes, I've been in heaven for a million years. Great. Watch. You all do know if something happens to God, we're finished. You all know that, right? You're like, hey, wait a minute. I haven't thought of that. Wait, what if there's like another creature out there? What if there's a creature that's bigger, stronger than God? And if a million years, this other creature finally wants to reckon with the one that we think is the Almighty God. By the way, there is none other beside him. Like, yeah, well, the Bible says that. But what if there's some other being bigger, stronger than God? There isn't. Because if there, there was, would they let him be over here getting away with these claims? He doesn't put up with it. He corrects it. There is none other. He is the highest. But if in a million years something happens to God, then we're toast. I'm here to tell you, nothing will happen to God because if it does, we're vulnerable. We may lose our salvation if something happens to God. No, listen, he's already died and proven death can't stop him. Can't stop him. He's invincible. Christ died for us. The Father has justified us. The Son not only died, He came back to life. Verse 34 continues. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Literally, the Son is right now ruling and reigning. Who indeed is interceding for us. There's a fourth reason why no one can successfully condemn Jeff Bartlett. Got a lot of evidence. I understand that. We sing a song here. Here's what it says. Catch it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. William Barclay says, we Christians, we have to change the way we think. We know that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. What's he doing there? He says, we've got to change the way our our thinking goes. Barclay says, quote, Christ, quote, is not there to be our prosecuting counsel. He's there to be the advocate to plead our cause. He's not there to state the case against us. He's there to state the case for us. He's not there to be our judge. He's there to be our friend. That's what he's doing. You will not lose your salvation Christ is interceding. He's already conquered death. He died. The one that matters, the one that's going to give the final judgment. He loves you, proved that he died for you, and the Father's already justified you. Nobody can be successful. Write this down. God's power saves us. Simple sentence. God's power saves us. God's power, I'm sorry, keeps us saved. God's power keeps us saved. Can we have Jude? Look at Jude. It has no chapter division. It's just verse 24. These are the last two verses of Jude. Look at the screen. Jude writes the following. The Lord's half-brother, physically. He says, now to him, watch this, because I just gave you a note. God's power keeps us saved. Watch the verse. Now to him who is able. If you believe the Bible, here's why you say, hey, preacher, why do you believe in eternal security? Watch it right here. Here's why. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Guys, if if that's the only passage I had, I'd have to look at that and go, man, this sounds like we make it. Romans 8, 28 sounds like we make it. You tack on 29 and 30, we really do make it. Man, Paul's questioning, his line of questioning in verse 31 to 34, all the way to the end of chapter. We make it, Jude is clear as, a, as day to him who's able to keep us. Can we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5? We've been redeemed, we've been saved. God causes us to be saved. Born again is the phrase he uses in verse 3. Watch verse 4. To an inheritance, watch him, we'll read it. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. People read that and go, yes, 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 yes. Our inheritance is there. We just don't make it. No. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 12. Look at this. Paul is in prison. I told you he's in prison. He doesn't make it out this time. Here's what he writes. He says, I'm an apostle, teacher, preacher. He says, this is why I suffer as I do. Quote, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom. You say, yeah, he knows what he believes. No, no, no. I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I can't lose it. Do you see this? Guys, this gives me great security. Great security. Should do the same for you. Now back to where we started. All right, preacher. If all that's true, then that's a recipe for a license to sin. If you can't lose it, then you just keep on preaching that. And what you're telling people is they can live any old way they want in this life and they still go to heaven if they trusted in Jesus at some point in their life. Uh, Technically, yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. But here's my real answer. So it's a license to sin, right? Here's the answer. No, it's not. Defend it. Don't have to. Paul in Romans chapter 5 and 6, his answer to that is, by no means. Why? Just because by no means. That's stupid thinking. Anyone, if you're sitting here right now and you come to this conclusion, hey, I'm a Christian. Man, I really am secure. These are great verses. I can go do anything I want to do. Then I think I'm just going to go live in sin and I'll go to heaven anyway. I'm going to give up a few rewards, but I'm going to go live the good life in this life. You, my friend, are not born again because God's people don't hear this truth and think that way. They don't think that way. That's so foreign. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to change the way I preach this just because some wackos hear this truth and twist it and pervert it. I'm not going to change. And I get it. There's some preacher friends who say, listen, hey, Jeff, listen. We know. We know this. But you don't have to tell them. You don't have to tell it so strongly. Just kind of hit it and keep moving. Your congregation needs some motivation to live and give. Man, you want your congregation to live and give. I say, walk in the Spirit, love the Lord God, and it'll produce the living and the giving. That's what I believe. It'll do it. I don't want you to pressure. You better live right or you're going to lose. Oh, I better give. I better go to church. I better read my Bible. I better tell people. Just four ways people think they can get saved. Four main views. You ready? Mankind saves himself. A lot of people. We save ourselves. Here's another one. We save ourselves. God helps us out a little. Here's the third one. No, 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 no. That won't work. God saves us. And we help him out a little. And then there's the fourth one. God does all the saving and all the keeping. Here they are again. Watch. We save ourselves. We just got to start doing good, stop doing the wrong things, and we'll go to heaven. We save ourselves. Second, no. We save ourselves, but we're going to have to have God help us out a little bit. Third one. That's crazy. God saves us, and I'm doing my part. That's how I hear it a lot. And I'm doing my part. Translation. God gets us on the team. God gets us an interview for the job. We land the job. We're in the company. Now we have to perform and work to stay on the team and stay in the company. That's those first three. The fourth one is true. God does all the saving. Theologian named J.C. Ryle writes the following. This is important. The first sentence I'm going to give you is important. You should listen carefully. He says, there are very few errors and false doctrines. That's numbers one, two, and three that I just told you. Man saves himself. Man saves himself with a little help from God. God saves us with a little help from man. Ryle says, there are very few errors and false doctrines of which the beginning, where did they start with that? Where did that come from? Of which the beginning may not be traced up to unsound views about the corruption of human nature. That's where it starts. You don't know how sinful we are. You have no clue. They don't understand how sinful we are. He continues, he says, wrong views of the disease, our sin, will always bring with them wrong views of the remedy. We'll save ourselves. We'll save ourselves and God will help us out. No, God will save us and we'll help him out. You have a totally wrong view of how sinful we are. He writes, quote, Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them wrong views of the grand antidote of that cure, of that corruption. Say, Jeff, hold hold, on, time out, dude. You are right now hitting the very reason why I think we can lose our salvation. Because we are so sinful. You say, you really shouldn't be bringing this up. You're defeating your own case. I'm bringing up how sinful we are because I want to show you this. We're so sinful, it has to be by grace. 
We're so wicked, so depraved, it has to be all of grace. We cannot help God at all. So why do you emphasize sin? Write this down. No, this is important. I believe this with all my heart. No single sin, but what if they do that? No amount of sin, but what if they do this and this and this for years? I would tell you no single sin or no amount of sin can separate us. Who's us? That's where I started. Us and we are true Christians who have obtained kind of salvation. No single sin, no amount of sin can separate us from God because nothing on our end brought us to God in the first place. Guys, if we could lose our salvation, real simple, here's what it means. If Jeff Bartlett loses his salvation, it means God was not satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross. Son, that was good. It's a good start. Got him started. But it wasn't quite enough. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 7. Look at the end of the verse. 1 John 1, 7. Look at the end. And the blood. Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Guys, I'm telling you, I could go on and on and on and on and on. And y'all believe that, right? We believe. You do go on and on and on and on. I'm going to close with this. Let me give you two, two, two passages. We're just going to read them and state the obvious. They're both found in John. Here I am, one-handed, holding a microphone. If you want to turn, John chapter 3, you know these verses. Listen to them as if you hadn't heard them. Watch. Having just said, Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up like Moses lifted up a serpent. So in the Old Testament, people were getting snake bitten and dying from these poisonous snakes. So they make a brazen serpent, put it up on a pole, and by faith, because God says if when they get bit, they'll look at this brazen serpent, they won't die from it. Jesus says that was a symbol, that was a picture of him being lifted up on a cross. And those of us who look to him in faith, like I did in 1979, I looked to Christ and what he did on the cross, that saves me from all my sin. Jesus says if the Son of Man be lifted up, Why? Verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He only has one. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Write this down. You see that word eternal? You want to know what it means? It means life of the ages to come. See it? You say, I want eternal life. It means life of the ages to come. Here's my question. How can God possibly pawn himself off as an honest being if he says, Jeff, 1979, I'm going to give you life of the ages to come, eternal life, and I lose it a few days later, a few months later, a few years later, a few decades later, I end up losing it. Hey, God, that wasn't life of the ages. I never got to experience it. Well, you lost it. I gave you life of the ages to come, but you sinned too much. Well, then I never had life of the ages to come. You're a liar. No one will ever call God a liar. And if that isn't strong enough for you, I've never had one person who believes a true Christian who has salvation can lose their salvation. I've never had one person explain to me John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Would you flip there as I close? Never had one person. Not on the screen, but the previous verse says, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. By the way, verse 26, he says, You do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Tie that into Romans 8, 29 and 30. You want to know why you don't believe? You're not of my sheep. But my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Verse 28. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them away out of my Father's hand. After that, he says, I and the Father are one. He said, man, that is pretty strong. We're in Jesus. He has his grip on us. The Father has his grip on us and the Son. It sounds like we're not getting out. Yeah, but what if I just want out myself? Remember the one theory? We get so far from God, we apostatize and we want to give up our salvation. Verse 28, one more time. I intentionally read one word softly. Never have I had a person explain this word to me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. A while ago I told you the word eternal means the life of the ages to come. Write this down. The word never means never. 
Never. It doesn't say in nature, they will not perish. It says they will never perish. Jesus says to those in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not that you had it and lost it. I never knew you. Where are you this morning? My last sentence before you bow your head is this. This is for Christians. This is not for professors. This is for possessors. Here it is. Salvation is absolutely secure because God's love for us is at every point based on His prior knowledge of the worst about us. And He already judged it on the cross. Well, then I'm going to go live there. Yeah, you you think that because you haven't got it yet. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes just for a moment? I'm going to close this morning. I'm not going to make it necessarily a come forward invitation unless the Holy Spirit literally leads you. And then to that I would say, obey the Spirit. Here's what I want to leave you with. Listen carefully. I have no reason to lie to you. I have every reason to be honest with you. I'm going to give an account for what I'm about to say. Listen carefully. You, you say, oh yeah, the person beside me. No, no, no. You have a future date in front of Jesus, and it's coming very soon. Sooner than you think. When it comes, you'll be, oh, if I'd known, I would have lived differently. You say, are you talking to the unsaved? Are you talking to the Christians? I'm talking to all of us. We all have a future date in front of Jesus coming very soon. Now listen, he's the one who condemns. He's the only one. The Father's not going to condemn. The Son will condemn or let live in heaven because they've been justified, declared righteous. I mention this event because literally Jesus' verdict will determine your eternal destiny. If I can just say it that plain. Where you live forever is determined by what Jesus says about your life. And it will either be two things. I'm saying this so fast. I'm questioning right now, am I saying this lightheartedly? I don't want to say it lightheartedly. Listen, his verdict will determine your eternal destiny. It will either be endless delight or endless torment. And that's scary to me. But here's what I take great comfort in, and you need to listen. God cannot lie. God cannot lie. I have his word here, right here on this podium. I've memorized some of it. You've seen it on the screen today. I say that for this. God can't lie. You're going to give an account. What he says will determine. You'll have no argument. No one's going to rebut what God says. Here's what's coming. He will speak about your life. It'll either be eternal torment or eternal delight. It's all based on did you put your faith and trust in Jesus. So here's what I want you to know. God can't lie. So if you can catch God saying something in His Word, the Bible, and you don't twist it, not taking a promise that was made to the Jews. I'm talking about these verses that tell like whoever and everyone. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, And he that comes to me, I will not cast out. All that come to me, I will not cast out. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's word. He can't lie. You're going to stand before Jesus one day. All you have to do is find him saying something, latch on to it, and say, I'm going to claim that by faith. God, I'm going to hold you to this. You said everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. A jailer who almost committed suicide asked Paul and Barnabas, Sirs, I'm sorry, Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Their answer, real simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a promise. God can't lie. So the question is not, I wonder if God will really save even me. That is not the question. I know the answer. Here's the question. Will you trust Him Enough to take him up on his promise that I just quoted to you and know that he'll save you. Say, Jeff, come on. What do I have to do? You have to understand that you're a sinner and confess it to God. Literally where you see it right now. God, I'm a sinner. I understand the evidence is all around. I, I am guilty. 
And then you got to trust God's Word. Do it right now. Talk to God. Don't talk to me. Fade me into the back and just have a conversation with God and say, Lord, I believe. I can't even remember all the details, but it sounded like he said everyone. He said, you said, God, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Lord Jesus, please save me from my sins right now. I accept your free forgiveness. If there's a Christian, you walked in here kind of doubting your salvation, you think you have it and you lose it and you're not sure, can I just encourage you? If you've trusted Jesus, that's all you can do to be saved. Do this. Stop doubting. Stop calling God a liar. Start enjoying the Christian life and surrender to the Holy Spirit. And boy, if there's a Christian, you say, I have my assurance. Chances are there's a very knowledgeable Christian. You are very sure of assurance. You know you're secure. You can never lose your salvation. In fact, you're so sure that the last month or so you've really relaxed and you've just kind of eased over into sin because you know you won't lose it I want to ask you do you hear God calling you this morning back to Him is He saying this to you don't let my security lead you to sin let my security free you to live righteously invest your life flee from sin run to me run to me this morning Father we're not worthy Lord we dare not tell you what to do but when you put yourself out there you want us to take you up on your promises so Lord let us not call you a liar let us rest in our security thank you for a savior who meets all of our needs Lord that's a down payment that you're going to give us everything Everything good is ours. We make it because of Christ. Thank you for that. Would you please stand?